Hello and welcome to part 6 of the TSSI series. In this episode, we go in some detail into a couple of tables and one equation from chapter 5 of Andrew Kleiman's Reclaiming Marx's Capital. I've used these as the image for this episode, so those listening on your phone should be able to follow along. You could also have the book handy or watch the YouTube live stream if you'd like to see everything we discuss in a little more detail. A quick shout out to the new Patreon subscriber, Nathan P. So without further ado, to the episode. Today we've got a fairly full panel. Let's kick it off and introduce people. We've got a return to the panel for the first time since the first episode. We've got Amog. Amog, do you want to say hello? Sure, hello. I'm Amog from the Symptomatic Redness Podcast. Very happy to be back. Welcome indeed. Then we all have another returnee. We've got Emmanuel, who ditched out in this for the last episode. <laughs> Hi, everyone. A lost cause representing Sweden. Borik Borg <laughs> to all of y'all. Right, let's let's keeping it keeping the side up for Europe here. Then we've got Alex from down under. Alex, do you want to say hi? Oh, hi, this is Alex. Just a regular dude staying up to two thirty a.m. to learn about simultaneous valuation. Well, that's not strictly true. It's only two thirty now, so he's going to stay up to about half five. which is really absurd. And uh, last but not least, <laughs> we have stalwart Lexi here. Lexi, say something. Hello, hello, hello. Okay, well, last week we went through chapter four in one go. It was quite easy and it was a hermeneutic dream. This week we've got possibly the most important chapter, I think, in the book. Let's just fire straight into it. This one is going, we're going to meet a few tables this week. Emmanuel's going to wet his pants in excitement at them. They're not for a while, though. So let's fire off into the introduction. Lexi, I'm going to go to you first as ever. Do you want to kick us off here and let us know what we're going to be hitting in this chapter? Yeah, yeah let's take a look at it. So here we have the broadest stroke argument of the book. It's that simultaneism, as he's described it, the equalization of input and output costs, is incompatible with the law of value. Not only is it incompatible with the law of value, but we enter a mathematical relationship where because the law of value is locked out. The only thing that can determine anything is physical quantities. And so this is the chapter where he formally links physicalism to simultaneism. And in my view, this is the argument that the book makes most successfully. This is the knockdown argument. This is the one I, I have ver- a lot of trouble seeing a counter argument to. And I think it's 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 pretty much the whole chapter. I mean, in, in previous episodes, we've dealt with simultaneism and physicalism, uh, the link between the two. And we've we've said that, you know, because simultaneism equalizes value across time so that future value is exactly equal to past value. If they are equal in magnitude, that means that value cannot be added. There can be no growth is something that we said, I think, in episode three or something. And we've also noted that, you know, if if there isn't anything that can grow or any sort of value that is added, then the only thing that's that's going to change is not value, but it's it's the physical quantities at, you know, at time one, you have four machines and at time two you have 
you have five machines, but the two are going to be the two times are going to be equal in value, as it were. So we've dealt with a lot of this before, but if you're still unconvinced, you know why simultaneism means you know one growth cannot happen in any respect except there is more stuff, and two, this implies that if there is more stuff, then your theory of profit is going to be related to the only the physical quantities related. If you're if you're still sort of following this show and you're still unconvinced by that, or you can't really put your finger on why that's true, this chapter is for you. That's right. So you're saying there that growth can't happen. So we really mean by that is like a growth in value in the system. Yes, exactly. And that's what the tables are for, even though yeah. it doesn't state that explicitly and they're confusing, but we'll get to that. I want to do just a little bit of chapter two for people who maybe come to this one new again, just to get our definitions clear when we talk about these physicalisms and stuff. Let's just read a little bit here. This is where he goes and he says, I use the term physicalism shorthand for Steedman's physical quantities approach, a term he coined to designate his approach to questions of value, price and profit. Steedman is a prominent Schraffian, but Schraffian and physicalism are not synonymous. The latter refers, so this is physicalism, to any approach that draws conclusions about the workings of capitalist economies from models in which the sole proximate determinants of value, relative prices, profits and the rate of profit are physical quantities or more precisely technology and real wages. So the rate of profit is basically determined by the physical outputs, yeah, which are in turn determined by the technology and the and the wages. I yeah, I, I like I like his uh picking apart of uh physicalism and uh Shrafianism. You know, so, sometimes when you read books that kind of coin terms, I'm not sure if he's coining this term, but he's got to coin some of these terms. You wonder if they're just sort of rigging, rigging it for their purpose and if a, t a term is really analytically useful. But I think physicalism is analytically useful. It covers a whole series of attempts to be very materialist about economics that don't admit for some emergent forces that are, I, I think, plausible. Just to quickly go and do this next little bit, just to finally put the nail in the coffin on these definitions. Physicalist conclusions depend crucially upon a particular method of valuation, simultaneous valuation or simultaneism. And simultaneous valuation leads necessarily and inevitably to physicalist conclusions. Simultaneist theorists solve their mathematical models by imposing the constraint that per unit prices or values of, of inputs into the production process must equal the per unit prices or values of the outputs produced. Since input and output prices are constrained to be equal, they are solved for together, like we did with our 4p equals 5p. Note that this definition, like the one above, refers to theorist models and not their views. Okay. Just that point about models is great. You know, if you pay attention to what people say about their own views, you have to deal with a lot of specialness. Everyone's very special. Everyone has a very special way of doing things, and you, nobody really likes that much to be grouped in with others. But when you adopt a sharp analytical heuristic that can categorize different points of view, you know, yeah, you might, you might lose a little something, but what you gain is the ability to be a lot more clear. And so even though physicalism and simultaneism is going to include, you know, pre-Shroffians like Borkovitz, Shroffians like Dmitriev, critics of Shroffianism from, like, from Marxism like Scheich, neoclassicists like Samuelson, you know, all kinds of people are, are included in this. It's still like 
because he's referring to the way people model things, that's what makes it such a useful generalization. I absolutely agree with you, Lexi. I thought that was one of the stronger things actually in this chapter is that Kleiman says, you know, most of these economists don't actually believe any of this, right? <laughs> they, um, they certainly don't believe yeah. that physical quantities are the sole, you know, determinate or, or um, real wages and technology are the sole approximate uh, determinants of, of value or rate of profit or anything like that. And they, they don't believe that increasing productivity leads to increases in, in price. In fact, most of them as he says, believes in, in the opposite. Like some of them even believe, you know, in Marx's conclusions. But what he's going to show is that these economists, regardless of their own personal views and regardless of their own theories, when they actually do the math and they sketch out their, their models mathematically, the maths and, and, the, and the models don't necessarily agree with the economist either. And all of these models boil down essentially to the same thing. And that's like his central claim here, as you also so eloquently summarized it, Lexi. Let's go on, I think, to chapter 5.3. Alex, how do you feel about taking this bad boy on? So this is 5.3, simultaneous, simultaneous valuation versus the law of value. He's saying that if simultaneism is adopted, then the production of value becomes redundant in determining the rate of profit and prices of uh, production, uh, he says that simultaneous is, is basically inc incompatible with the idea that value is determined by labor time. And also, once you adopt a physicalist methodology, his um, law of the falling rate of profit doesn't doesn't hold true anymore. Yeah, so he says here that once you do simultaneism, long-term falling rate of profit falls on its ass. The exploitation of workers in order for a profit to exist is falsified. The claim that Ricardo was wrong to, to deny production conditions in luxury industries have an influence on the economy-wide rate of profit falls apart. You know, yeah. value becomes unnecessary. Like this paragraph is like, the whole theory falls apart, essentially. And that's what Kleiman has uh, already explained earlier and that we uh, discussed in the 5P equals 4P thing. This is just restating the same things, but he's going to give a lot clearer reasons as, as to why. Can, can I read out one of these sentences? I love how, what a clear laundry list of, uh-oh, this is, okay? His claim that exploitation of workers is necessary for, in order for profit to exist is falsified. His claim that Ricardo was wrong to deny that profit conditions in luxury industries have an influence upon the economy-wide profit rate. The production of value becomes redundant at best to the determination of the rate of profit and prices of production. Values can be negative. Surplus value can be negative when profit is positive. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> awful. Yeah. Everything just falls apart. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Well, let's have, a, let's have a look here. I really like this paragraph here that started just below it. Lexi, do you want to read this one? How can a seemingly innocuous tool of analysis wreak such havoc? The answer is simple. Simultaneous valuation is absolutely incompatible with the principle upon which Marx's value theory is founded, the principle that value is determined by labor time. To see this, consider a favorite expository device of simultaneous theorists, especially Schroffians, the corn model. Corn, or grain in the United States, is produced using only corn of the same kind, planted as seed, plus the labor of farm workers. Simultaneous theorists impose the constraint that a bushel of seed corn 
planted at the start of the year is worth exactly as much as a bushel of corn harvested at the end. If the value of a bushel of seed corn is five bucks, then the value of a bushel of corn output must also be five bucks, no matter how much or how little the farm workers have had to labor in order to produce it. They might have had to toil for a thousand hours or only 10 hours or not at all. It makes no difference. The per value unit of the corn output cannot rise above nor fall below the per unit value of the seed corn. There is therefore no meaningful sense in which the corn's value depends on the amount of labor needed to produce it. Boom, mic drop. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it is a startling, like, you know, it's just simple as value becomes absolutely worthless and meaningless in a situation where you value simultaneously. And it yeah. automatically becomes a physicalist one. The rate of profit is how many extra bushels of corn do you have? And it doesn't matter at which, whether the farmer worked 10 hours a week or 150 hours a week. Right. Yep. And if you assume this, it's no surprise that you come to the conclusions that you do, right? It's mm -hmm. no surprise that exploitation is irrelevant to profit. Absolutely. That's a, that's a really good point, because how could it be relevant how hard you have to make the guy work? It, yeah, so and it just seems to me that it's abstracting away from class relations. How does the um, intensity of labor factor into this model of the economy? It just doesn't make sense to me. The one thing that he uh, th that Andrew sort of omits here is why simultaneous think this. I know we, we, we should have banned like value form theory by now, but <laughs> it sort of harkens back to to that discussion because the logic here is if you're a farmer and you plant a seed from which you produce corn, how do you know what that seed is worth at the time of planting? And the simultaneists will say, well, you don't. The way you figure that out is that you find out when you sell the finished corn. So when the corn is harvested and sold on the market, that's when you know what value it has. That's not that's known beforehand. And so once you know the value of the corn, then and only then can you sort of track back in time and say that, you know, what was the value of the seed? Well, the value of the seed was five bucks because it gave us five bucks worth of corn in the end. It's sort of a backwards, you know, uh, value transporting itself backwards in time, as it were. And, and this is why one of the many reasons why value form theory is n not a valid interpretation of, uh, of Marx. But that's, that's just to give the reader some background into why anyone would think this is a good idea is, is just because of that, that, you know, these, these uh, all simultaneists assume that value is created or determined in exchange and not prior to it. And if you think that, then this, then it necessarily leads to simultaneism. I mean, so there's two things, two things I'd like to add about that. I mean, the first thing is that it's, there's there's this, this sort of epistemological worry that Kleiman kind of mentions, the idea that, well, listen, you know, exchange value is in some sense visible, it's in some sense more real, and the other kind of value, value in production, is posited or metaphysical, or, you know, this thing, these, these things that people say again and again. So that, I think, is sort of part of the motivation, right? So the idea, the idea I take it is that, well, 
listen, all the evidence we have in terms of figuring out from the data we receive is the, is the value in exchange. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that, I mean, there's a very interesting kind of, interesting kind of correspondence between this simultaneous view and the sort of equilibrium assumptions in neoclassical economics. I mean, I don't think it's a sort of one-for-one, one, you know, I don't think this is exactly what people are criticizing when they're criticizing sort of neoclassical economics, but I, it, it sounds, the, the assumption sounds similar to me, actually, and the consequences are very similar, especially with the technology and real wages are the only thing that play a role in the end. That's certainly a sort of article of faith for a lot of people, like it can, completely abstracting away from the Marxian yeah, that's that's a good point, Amog. It's like, especially when we think about how you know neoclassicals basically abstract away from time, you know, which is a critique. This is what's happening here. We're getting rid of time. It's interesting that you know the same thing that say Steve Keen would give out about neoclassical stuff is what's being done precisely in all of this simultaneous stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, in the end, the, the idea is like the labor process in some way doesn't matter, right? It doesn't, you know, we can abstract away from the labor process, basically. It's sort of, it's not that it, it's not that it sort of makes no difference. I mean, the idea would be that, well, any possible contribution the labor process has made, it is already made in at the, you know, in exchange value and that somehow captured an exchange value. But I mean, I can't even make sense of that. Okay, I'm going to read this next bit here because it just it just kind of hammers home some of the points again. So going on with this idea of the farmer and his corn. Okay, so since the very concept of value is frequently dismissed as metaphysical, opponents of metaphysics might benefit from a rephrasing of the point. Simultaneous valuation, in effect, prevents changes in productivity from affecting the price or value of corn. Contrast this to the real world. When productivity rises... When the same amount of labor yields more output, commodities prices tend to fall. This is essentially what Marx meant by saying that value was determined by labor time. But we don't need Marx to tell us this. Every farmer knows that he can get a higher price for a bushel of corn after a bad harvest than after a good one. Simultaneism, on the, other, on the contrary, implies that a bushel of corn output cannot be worth more than a bushel of seed corn after a bad harvest, nor less than a bushel of seed corn after a good one. Of course, nobody actually believes that real-world prices of value remain constant over time. Nevertheless, when they correct Marx or try to prove him guilty of internal consistency, simultaneous theorists do stipulate that the prices of inputs cannot differ from the prices of outputs that emerge. If Marx's theoretical conclusions contradict the conclusions that they obtain by valuing everything simultaneously, they regard this as the fault of his theory rather than their own interpretations in violation of accepted interpretive practice. Ooh, so, mic drop. Yeah, there's a lot of mic drops in this chapter. I really yeah. like it. <laughs> and on the same page, even. I mean, that's hey. true, yeah. <laughs> there was a, a debate in neoclassical economics. I think it was like within the last decade that it became especially prominent. The question really reached the mainstream. Why do neoclassical economists make these, or, or economists more generally, make assumptions that seem unrealistic. And there was a, a fairly prominent neoclassical economics paper of which I cannot remember, sort of philosophy of economics paper, that's like, look, if you get a practical result out of an unrealistic assumption, 
then um, then it justifies the unrealistic assumption. Is, is that by Milton Friedman? It's a Milton Friedman argument, isn't it? That, that might be. I, I don't recall. It, the paper I was reading wasn't Milton Friedman, but it, it was a sort of uh, rehashed version of an argument that I'm sure was coming up quite a bit, but this during the uh, financial crisis kind of era. So I think probably a bunch of these theorists, not all of them, for instance, I think we mentioned uh, Steve Keen rejects this equilibrium stuff, but then when he models Marx is, is doing this. Uh, but a lot of these economists probably think that this is just a good tool, even though it's making this un clearly unrealistic assumption. And uh, it's just not compatible with the insights of Marx. I, I say this because talking to Andrew, he doesn't say that this kind of valuation is worthless. He says, adopting tools is based on what you want the tools to do. And if you want to do Marx, you can't adopt this tool. It's, it's a bit unhelpful to phrase this as a, I mean, depending on what he wants to do in the book, I suppose he can do that. But it's a bit unhelpful to phrase this as a Marx scholarship argument. We can put this in terms of the realism of the assumptions, you know, to core, right? So we can just say, well, listen, your account, your account presupposes the claim that, you know, labor time makes no difference to valuation and changes in productivity don't affect price. This is wrong. I mean, actually, I'm not sure what the I'm not sure what the empirical upshot argument com that comes to the one that we were rehearsing from Friedman, right? I take it the the right. idea is basically, well, you know, who cares about like the truth happiness of theories? Who even cares about like predictive accuracy, whatever that means? I I, I would push back that I think predictive accuracy is what is being is what. Uh, truthfulness is being sacrificed for in assumption. Oh, I see. Yeah, so predictive accuracy is what justifies an unrealistic assumption. Right. So I get, I, I mean, the, the trick with that is, of course, there's all kinds of ways, both statistically and otherwise, to achieve predictive accuracy without achieving explanation, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. you know like yeah. curve fitting and overgeneralization and all these kinds of things, you know? <laughs> And anyway, yeah. uh, you know, to rehearse the, you know, not to rehearse the old sort of neoclassical argument, but they don't even have predictive accuracy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, anyway, I mean, it's there. I think there are like thematic similarities between the simultaneous TSSI debate and the neoclassical debate. It's not the same debate, obviously, because, you know, different, <laughs> different claims are an issue. I, I didn't know that when I was reading this. I thought that it was basically the same debate, and I didn't realize that this is sort of a subsection of that debate. Right. I mean, also obviously, so very obviously, like there are common points, right? So simultaneous are also people, you know, who have this kind of fixation with equilibrium. They're exchange focused, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, they ignore time and they ignore class struggle, right? So that's definitely in common. But they're simultaneous. Won't sign up to general equilibrium theory. They won't sign up to the you know marginalism. They were etc. 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 Right. So it's obviously you know it's not the same debate. Yeah, and not only that, but many simultaneists will also deny that they're simultaneist. Uh, I can't recall if if Kleiman mentions him directly in this chapter, but his debate with uh, Mosley, for instance. So Mosley is a another sort of analytical Marxist economist who is also sort of into the, you know, whole reviving Marx's value theory business, sort of wants to repopularize and re-legitimize Marxist. Kleiman and Mosley have a, you know, long-standing beef with each other, and this is 
part of part of what makes that beef is that mostly does not think that he himself is a simultaneist. Mosley does not think that he is a physicalist, but Andrew will try to show that using Mosley's mathematics, even though they seem to be Marxist, and even though labor seems to be the determinant of all prices and values in Mosley's model, they actually break down to physicalism, and they actually break down to simultaneism. I think this is this is uh, good to keep in mind when 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 dealing with this chapter is that Andrew again doesn't really think that these people actually think or believe what they're saying, <laughs> sort of. Yeah, well, like I think there's a good there's an argument to be made here. When I was rereading this book, and I'm just looking because I think it's in this chapter somewhere, but I can't see it now when I'm looking, is that why does somebody like Mosley do it? Why does he do it? Like he's quite aware of what he's doing, and and the re the reason why he's doing this simultaneist evaluation is not because he wants to be like use neoclassical tools or anything, but he thinks that the value of a commodity that's being produced is dependent on the current cost. His beef with Kleiman there is about the value transferred of constant capital. Yes. So so that's kind of why he is a simultaneist as opposed to yeah, a temporalist. And yeah. And how and, he values him. So I think we got to be fair to him there because he thinks he's doing what Marx is saying, but Andrew thinks he's not when it gets to the hermeneutics of it. But I think if, if we can find that bit where where we get to the actual bit, I'll bring it in. And because what's interesting yeah. is what's interesting here is that when I was reading, I was off, right? I was off with just this book. I had no phone. I was off on the holidays, off on the west coast of Ireland, off this tiny island, Clare Island, off the west coast, home of the pirate queen, Grania Whale, and it was like, you know, really amazing today. So now, what was I reading? Instead of looking at the scenery and having a good time, I was reading this goddamn book, right? <laughs> and and at one stage in it, I I I got I, I read that argument of Mosley, and I suddenly went, oh my god, Andrew's totally wrong. <laughs> Right, Whoa. I did, and I was like, "Oh my god!" And the argument convinced me for about for about three or four hours, and then I got reconvinced and back, and away I went. So I, huh. I, I that's the idea there. But it, it makes so the difference for me then is like it's the value of the inputs at the time of production when the production yep. starts, and yep. that's why you can't do simultaneous valuation. Yep. That's that's what Mosley's getting wrong. He's yep. using the the value of the outputs, and that's why he he's allowed himself to set them equal. And, yes, and that's exactly. His exact <clears throat> argument, and that's the beef between him and Andrew. I think both of them are going towards it, you know, in good faith. And I think yeah. Mosley's making his arguments in good faith. But that is the core crux of all of this for me. Yeah. It's that and simple thing. <clears throat> So and, and, and we're we're gonna see that uh, a bit later on in, in in the tables because it's actually it, it becomes explicit if you don't draw them up the the way Kleiman does. But um, the valuation of um, value transferred by constant cop capital is the sole determinant there as well, uh, and we're gonna see why in a bit. But but yeah, I believe you're right, and I think this is this is the chapter where most economists who read this get really angry at Kleiman because 
Most of them, just like Mosley, do not believe that they're simultaneists. They do not believe that they're physicalists. But Andrew is going to point his finger to all of them and say, even though you're, you know, you think you're doing this, but your maths don't work out. I am better than you at maths. <laughs> and none of you are free. You. None of you are free from physicalism. Yeah. And I can actually, I can actually tell all of you that even though your theories are very, you know, have completely different assumptions and you're, you know, whether you're neoclassical or Marxist or whatever, uh, I can show by a, by some eloquent deductive karate that uh, they all boil down to the exact same thing. Um, yeah. And, and the thing is, like with Borkovich and those guys not doing Marx, but like people like Mosley think they're being true to Marx because they're taking his they're taking seriously his Marx's idea that, you know, the value I say, if I buy a whole load of leather to make some shoes today and the price goes down when I go to do production, it won't be the price I paid for them. That will be the value transferred. So they're trying to be good Marxists, even though they're getting it just slightly wrong. They're just getting it. They're getting it just slightly wrong and it's causing a massive fuck up. We should go over uh, some of that stuff because Whereas when I finished reclaiming Marx's capital and even uh, um, to a certain extent the failure of capitalist production, I kind of felt like I had a good handle on the material. When I was done reading the, those debates, I was like, "What the fuck is going on?" Like, <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. So at some point, I'd, I'd love to go over that. Yeah. Well, I think we should just jump straight to the tables and have a look at these yeah. tables, and then we can work back right. through these arguments because people will be listening to this and be going, "These fucking tables. He's building them up." So let's let's just go there. Yeah, because I don't think All we right. need any of these intermediary arguments to get there. Okay, well, Michael, why don't you fire us through this physicalist one, and I'll do the other one then. All right, so we're looking at a physical system wherein we have seed, we've got wages, and we use the seed and our labor to produce corn. Uh, and, and every year, the production increases by 20%. So what we're looking at is we're starting at 125 seed plus wages in the same units. We use 75 seeds and 50 corns worth of wages. And uh, we produce 150 bushels of corn. Awesome. Cool. And we end up with, you know, 150 minus 125 equals 25. So uh, we produced 25 more bushels of corn than went into the production process. Thus, we have a rate of profit-ish, you know, um, profit sort of in quotes. He doesn't, you know, of, uh, of 20%. All right, cool. Next year, how much seed do, uh, do we have? Well, we have 90 seeds. Why do we have 90 and not a, a different number? Well, because we always increase by 20%. Uh, same thing with wages. Why is it 60 and not 50 as it was the previous year? Well, because it increases by one-fifth and so on. And so we have an output of 180 year two with profits, i.e. more corn harvested than invested, of 30 bushels of corn, etc. And we're going to do this for three years. So that's what we're looking at. And then we have table 5.2 directly beneath that. What he's trying to show here is 
how these physical quantities, so we know that year one, we produce 150 bushels of corn. The next year, we produce 180 bushels of corn. And the third year, we produce 216 bushels of corn. So we know that we produce more and more output every year. Now, here's the, here's the kicker. Here's the catch. What's happening to the values? Are the values going to increase as well? What's going to happen to the value side of things? And so he draws up this table 5.2 to sort of go through what's going to happen with the values. And this is where things got really confusing for me because you can see there on the column per unit value, it goes from one to five sixths, and then 25 36ths. I was just like, where the hell do those numbers come from? What is going on? And why are the values constant? I right. get that they are, but where do these numbers come from, et cetera? And that's sort of where I had to retrace everything from the beginning and why I hate table number uh, 5.2. <laughs> okay. But I, 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 can, I can explain it now. The general gist of the second table is he's trying to basically, the first one is physical outputs, and then the second one is value outputs. And yeah. the reason why the value is one at the start, well, because that's what we set it to. And in the second year, the value is five six because the output is one fifty in the physical amount, and it's dividing it's one twenty five divided by one fifty, so it basically becomes five six. Yeah, but that's not why that's happening. He only explains this in one footnote. It's in footnote. Okay, eight. you're you're right about the gist of it, but the the, the, yeah, the devil the here is in the details, and the details here are so cool and. I cannot for the life of me understand why he doesn't put them in the actual book. <laughs> so why is it uh, that the per unit value is one year one and five sixths year two and 25, 36, oh, Jesus Christ, that's a mouthful, year <laughs> three. So here is where I would like to just walk everyone through the logic of this so that you can derive this for yourselves and see why this is happening and exactly what the fuck is going on. Can I can I say it in, in, in plain English and tell me if I'm totally cool. wrong here? It's, be, it's because awesome. the output is being set to the amount of input. So the 150 has been set to 125. Okay. So the, the value of the input and outputs should be, should, be, should be equal. And if the value of 125 was one each, but the, the output then, each output is only five six as expensive. And you're, then the you're, next you're, one. you're on you're on the right track but but again the the, the details here matter okay you're you're, you're on the yeah. right track but it's it's uh it's not exactly that simple or, or you'll see that in the end yes it is that simple because that's how andrew sort of boils down the simultaneous argument but if you'd like i could go through the 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 step by steps here i think they actually tell a really important story Tom, this is a really strange request, but could you bring up Microsoft Paint on the share screen? Oh, shit. I'm so Microsoft sorry, Paint still exists? Let's start by looking at year one. We have an output of 150. Everything is fine and dandy, and we have, we have had a profit, you know, in, in quotes, of 25. Now, here's the question. What's the value of that output? We know we have 150 bushels of corn, 
but how much is every bushel worth? So we know that the value of our 150 bushels of corn is going to be our output, as in, you know, the number of units, which is 150, times whatever the value of them happen to be. The value of all of our bushels at the end of the year is going to be output times value. We can call that V, right? How do we figure out what V is? Well, here's the cool thing about simultaneous valuation, because simultaneists, by definition, say that the end of the year prices or values are going to be equal to the inputs. So put an equal sign there. And what are our inputs? It's going to be our seed times V, right? Because it's the same V in simultaneous evaluation, plus the new value added, right? By living labor. And Kleiman is going to set this to 75. We could take any number, but Kleiman is going to assume in this, in this particular example that every year, we work the same amount. The labor produces 75 units worth of new value. So we're going to have output times V is going to equal seed times V plus the new value added, which in this case is 75. Is, is everyone with us so far? Yeah. So now we can do a little bit of algebra with this, throw some, some, do some juggling around and find an expression for V. And that is V equals, so this is for any output and any amount of seed, V equals 75 divided by the difference between output and seed. How much output do we have in year one? 150. How much seed do we have? 75, right? 150 minus 75 is? It's 75. Yeah, and 75 divided by 75 is 1. Right, exactly. So each bushel of corn year 1 is worth 1. Awesome. So we have a value of 150, and we have 150 bushels of corn. Awesome. This does not seem to be a problem for simultaneous. But wait, what happens in year 2? How much output do we have? So 180, and how much C do we have? 90. Right, which is what? That's uh, 5, 6, isn't it? It's 90, 75 over 90. Oh, all right. Right, which is 5 sixths or 0 0.8333, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we have 180 bushels of corn, but each bushel of corn is worth 0 0.8333 now, all right? So put that in a calculator. What's 180 times 75 divided by 90? And 75 divided by 90 is 0 0.8333, blah, blah, blah. So each bushel of corn is worth almost you know, 0.8, whatever. And we have 180 bushels of corn. So how much value do we have in our total system here at year two? It's 150. Yeah, there you go. So let's let's try this for uh, for year three as well. So even though we have more seed, we have more output, we have higher profits, we have a higher rate of profit, we have added 
75 units of new value by our labor, it turns out that when we actually do the math, hey, it's still 150. So let's try, let's see if this holds true for year three as well. How much output do we have? 216, right? How much C do we have? Uh, 108. Right. So how much is each bushel of corn worth? That's 75 over 108. Which is? Over 36. Yeah, which is equal to 0 0.6 something, 644, I think. 6944. 6944. All right. Yeah. If each Five. bushel of corn is worth 0 0.6944, what are all of our 216 bushels of corn worth? It's still going to be 150. So now you know how to, you know, on the back of a cocktail napkin or anything, prove to anyone how all simultaneous theories, this holds for all simultaneous value theories, how all of them will necessarily lead to a system where no value can be created and that cannot possibly grow. I'd just like to call your attention to one more thing, sort of why, why and how this matters. So we said at the beginning, the value of our total economy will be how many bushels of corn we produce times the unit value of them, right? And we were asking, all right, how do we figure out what the unit price is? And we found a way to figure that out by saying that V times our output on the left-hand side is equal to the constant capital, i.e. the seed, times V plus new labor added for the per unit value times the number of units produced on the left-hand side equals on the right-hand side, the seed, which is converted into corn. How many seeds are converted into corn? The value of that seed, right? So V times seed plus, in our case, 75, right? Does that make sense? So the, va the, the value of, of each seed, i.e. the value of our constant capital plus the new labor added, right? Does this seem similar to you to Marx's formula of how value is determined in a commodity, i.e. the value transferred by constant capital plus the new value added by living labor? If it does, it's, it's because they look ex exactly alike. What ends up happening is that what all simultaneist theories are actually saying is that the value transferred by the seed, what that ends up saying, in effect, is that the value transferred by the seed is directly determined not by its current cost of production or whatever, but by the value at the very end of the process or at the beginning. Or, you know, it's, it's, it's determined by, by V. And that's why all of this is messed up. All of this, the, the, the whole reason why this physicalist simultaneous system cannot grow in value is entirely dependent on how, how the value transferred by the seed or, or constant capital has to be valued. Because in simultaneous evaluation, it's the same multiplier as the units you actually produce. And that's what, what gives us this entirely weird thing where we have 
an economy that although it, it produces more corn every every year, although every year we put in 75 units more labor and more value in it than we did before, the whole reason all of that offsets is entirely due to the fact that in this type of, of evaluation, the value transferred by constant capital is simultaneously determined. And I thought this is, I think this is a really important insight because that's why Kleiman goes on and on about, you know, how we figure out how value is determined by machinery and technology, et cetera, is super crucial. Like in, in the beginning, of the, the, the very first episode, we were kind of like, okay, does not does it really matter if it's, you know, a replacement cost or current cost? Isn't that sort of splitting hairs? No, it's not. And this is, this is why it's not splitting hairs and why it's so important. That V before seed in our little equation, that's the, that's a whole, that's the one thing, like change that just a little bit and you end up with something as absurd as a, a system that cannot grow. Yeah, that's my that's my thing with the tables. <laughs> so what's interesting there, I just thought we should say is that the 75 in that equation here, we have value is 75 uh, over output minus seed. That 75 is the, the I assume the new that labor comes from added, the, the from new the value added by labor. Yeah, it's VNS. It's it's always going to be V plus S. Yeah. So but after all of that, so what we're what we're saying is that he keeps reevaluating the value of the output. I'm going to shut the, up. The, the yeah. value transferred to each bushel of seed. That's that's the key. So the the the, the value that each bushel of uh, uh, each bushel of seed, each uh, that that yeah. the value that seed is going to transfer to the bushel. That multiplier always no matter how much value we add is going to offset all the new labor and all the new value we add no matter how much value we add the multiplier that determines the the value transferred by the seed is going to offset that so that we never exceed 150 or, or rather we always equal 150 no matter what we do it's all due to the simultaneous valuation of the value transferred by the seed to the bushels and that 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 varies every year and this is why we're getting the result we are okay so like this brings us back to remember i was, a, it was two episodes ago i think where i was saying to you like does this mean i because I, I was in my language in my in my brain i was saying this means that you know value can never increase you yeah. know that once you said value inputs and outputs equal it means that value can never increase yep. so if we're saying prices can increase and values never can, that they're they're shorn apart, and this is it here. And but I think that the the, the crux of this one, if the idea of this argument between Kleiman and Mosley here is that Mosley thinks that when he looks at the value of the output, the inputs should be revalued at the value of the outputs, and this is why he does it. It's this paragraph here. This is Mosley's point, and. It's what kind of convinced me for about 10 minutes. I know, it took 10 minutes. It was a few hours. Okay, on Clare Island. Okay. Simultaneous authors typically defend the computations in table 5.2, but that arguing that the inputs have simply been revalued at the replacement cost. Yeah. 
Okay, so let's see. Let's have a look there. So he's saying that the reason why this 150 here then becomes a 125 the minute they start trying to do something with the output is because the 75 inputs. So let's have a look. Inputs here have been revalued at the replacement cost, which we're saying is five sixths. Isn't that the crux of the whole thing? Yeah. So we're saying the total capital gets revalued because the, the 150 here basically becomes 125 because the value, of, it shouldn't be valued at 150. It should be valued at five sixths of their price. So it goes straight back to 125. And so then when we do our thing, it goes to 150 again, and then we switch it back to 125. That they're seeing this 150 here. Grand, this is the output. But actually, now we've got to go and revalue these motherfuckers because the value of them has dropped. Yeah, but the 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 the, the only reason that happens is that the multiplier, i.e., the value transferred by the seed, changes every year. That's the only reason that happens because we've we've said uh, in in our model, we've said what we've said. Output increases by 20% every year. We've said wages uh, increase by 20% every year. We've said that seed increases by 20% every year. And on top of that, we're saying that every year we add 75 units of new value to the system. Yes. So how on earth can it remain constant when we just keep adding stuff? And the, and the reason that this happens is that the value transferred by the seed must decrease in order to offset the, the increase in, in, in labor. So no matter how much or how little labor we do, the simultaneous valuation of the value transferred by the seed always mathematically, indubitably, forever and ever until all times end, always offsets that. But it's it's... Yes. I think it's crucial to understand that it's because the multiplier keeps changing. The multiplier of the value transferred keeps changing. And this is why only the TSSI account of how much value is transferred by constant capital works. Just read now what Andrew says, because he'll say it. 148 times better than me. Okay. To see what has gone wrong, notice that the value of output at the end of year one is 150 and that all output is reinvested as seed and wages. So it would seem that the total capital invested at the start of year two should also be 150. It's only 125, however. 25 units of capital value have been conjured away. As we shall see in chapter seven, this trick is the secret behind the attempts to disprove Max's long-term fall in the rate of profit on logical grounds. Clearly, the rate of profit cannot fall with the progress of capital accumulation when the accumulation is artificially prevented from taking place. Okay, this is the paragraph that I really like. Simultaneous authors typically defend the computations in table 5.2 by arguing that the inputs have simply been valued at the replacement cost, the amount of value that would be needed to replace them at the year's end. The capital value actually advanced at the start of year two is 150 they say none of it has been carjured away but the inputs replacement cost is 125 and the rate of profit computed on the base of such costs is 20 percent the problem with this argument is that the replacement cost of rate of profit is not a rate of profit in any real sense it's not what firms seek to maximize and it fails to accurately measure either their actual rates of return 
or their potential rates of accumulation. In other words, their ability to grow. Okay, so this paragraph caused my head to explode on Clare Island, I must admit. It took me a while to calm down after this paragraph. <laughs> I'm all ears. Yeah, like I, I thought that 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 sounds correct, that they should be revalued. That yeah. the but, it, but but if they are revalued, you cannot add value. <laughs> correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and like that's I was thinking. Yeah, like and I was thinking about it. Like if we think about this from uh, get away from all this simultaneous bullshit, you know, and all these tales and stuff. If we think about like kind of a thought experiment, um, you know, I buy some leather, it's ten pound square meter or whatever at the moment. Uh I make my shoes. My shoes go to the market the next day. The next day, uh, I sell. I add, say, the same amount of value to the shoes. I go and I try and sell them. Like nobody has been able to buy them at any kind of different price. Everybody's buying a ten, and I go and sell them in the market at value. And subsequently, this first thing that morning, markets open. The letters at nine pounds. Do I sell my shoes for ten plus ten, which is twenty pounds? Or do I sell them at ten plus nine or nineteen pounds? Okay, to me, I sell them at twenty pounds. Yeah, nobody is going to be able to. The replacement cost is not nineteen pounds because nobody yet has made them for nineteen pounds. They've literally only made them for twenty pounds, and the replacement cost is twenty pounds. And it won't be nineteen pound until that that somebody buys that nine pound letter and then makes it the next day and sells it. You know, the start of the next day. So, like, there is a temporal nature to this replacement cost, and that to me is the argument of why Andrew is right and why, say, Mosley is wrong. That the input. It should be at the time, the cost of the input at the time when they go into production. And that that to me is just that that's it. That's the whole book. Yep. And and that and only that assumption will generate a model in which values increase by labor time. Exactly. And if no, no other. I mean, regardless of what Marx wrote or, or, or didn't write, the the logic behind this, the the v, you know, equals the value added, you know, seventy five divided by outputs minus seed. That that proves that equation right there. Um, that uh, if you do it in that way, and you just have one determinant of v, um, then you know. Uh, no growth could possibly take place, and but we knew this deductively before, right? We 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 knew that if you're saying that all future value and all past value um, are are the same or of the same magnitude, then that implies that value cannot increase. We we knew this de deductively, but here here we've seen with with numbers and and maths uh, another argument for why why that's inevitably true. I uh. 
just as an aside, uh, calling back something Amog said before and something that you were just saying, I actually think that the most important thing going on here, uh, excuse me, <laughs> the most important thing going on here is that the this is Marx's model. Um, I don't know if this is the only way to look at an economy, but it's really the only way to look at uh, what Marx is getting at. It's not, and so regardless of what Marx may have said on occasion, this is the theoretical heart of his model. Like it's, it has to be. Anyway, just an aside. Yeah. Oh, that, that's it. That's chapter five, folks. <laughs> yeah. we, we, should, we should work through the uh, the previous sections with that uh, yeah, yeah, table sure. in mind. Let's, let's let's get back to that. Yeah. Let's. I think before we before we go anywhere, let's not because this is to me the most important chapter in yes. this book. Okay. And. I just want to keep going with a couple of little things he says here because just for everybody in case I think there's a couple of uh, good things in here I, uh, uh, before we go. But I, I think, you know, so what, yeah, what we've seen is that, you know, we set these inputs into outputs. Some of them were doing it like Borkovich and these guys were doing it, not because they thought that's what Marx was doing. And then it seems to have mutated into some Marxists have analysed what Marx said and I think some of them definitely in good faith have, uh, you know, thought that this simultaneous thing is correct because of that argument right there about revaluing stuff. But even if they do it in good faith, that there's still like that in itself, once you work out the logic of it, it cannot possibly be what Marx would have meant because it immediately gets rid of all value. And I think, you know, uh, there is a very good faith argument, I think, for setting them equal in those tables, but I think it's wrong. And, you know, I think that's the crux for me. That's kind of like the crux of this whole argument. And I, I just think it's amazing. But let's, let's, let me just read this paragraph. I think I have this highlighted in my book. So, God damn it, I'm not gonna, I haven't read it uh, for a few days. So, I think it's a good one. Note that the replacement cost defense maintains that the value of profit is a healthy 20%, even though the capitalist farmers actually invested a value of 150 at the start of year two, and the value of their output is 150 at the end. The farmers, on the other hand, they're a wee bit disappointed. They think, I've made no profit at all. Some readers may wish to explain to the farmers that they've been taken in by a metaphysical value theory. You have actually done quite well. You've ended up with 20% more corn <laughs> than you initially invested. And your potential rate of accumulation is there 20% as well. You can expand your operations by up to 20%. Such readers, twice. If the farmers borrowed 150 quid from the startup capital from their bankers, and then they ended up with nothing, indeed less than nothing, they must sell off their entire corn output and use their sales revenue of 150 to repay the principal on the bank loans. They have nothing left to expand their operations, even in physical are unable to accumulate. Moreover, they have not yet paid and cannot pay the interest that they owe the bankers. The same situation occurs year after year, year, and soon the farmers are drowning in debt. You know, when you put it into plain English like that, you know, it's goddamn, it's goddamn slam dunk. You know, the example makes clear that if the physical quantities and value increase at different rates as they do if value is determined by labor time, then physicalism is incompatible 
with the necessarily true proposition that the value rate of profit is the potential growth rate of capital value. Okay, probably getting a little technical, but um, you know, I, I just think it's it's amazing. I just think that it all falls out of that. And the key for me, the key table are those table five point one and five point two, and the key paragraph in the entire book for me is this one here: the simultaneous authors defend their computation at replacement cost. You know, we've had our 5p equals 4p. We've got these two tables and we've got this paragraph. And to me, that's the entire book. What do people think to that? Am I getting overexcited? Well, no, I think I think that actually this paragraph here is where Kleinman is giving the most charity and extending the most, you know, like pr presenting an argument from what he clearly overturns um, in a sympathetic way. Like, okay, here's here's the reasoning. This is this isn't actually like crazy, like you said. Um, like this is a convincing way of reading things. You know, when I was I was going back and forth on this, I didn't realize the import of replacement cost versus you know other types of you know temporal valuation. What you know, whatever. Like I I didn't make a distinction between those things. Um, and so even just getting like terminology from this was helpful. Um. This this out of m most of the book gives me more of a sense of why simultaneous are doing something as opposed to just they're wrong and they're so wrong it leads to this. It's like, yeah, but why? Why are so many people doing that? This uh, the first part at least gives you a, a taste of that while not dropping, but by the way, they're wrong, you know. <laughs> Okay, sorry everybody. I had to go to uh, to do a, a pit stop. What happened when I was gone? Uh, just summing up that this is the most uh, charitable read of simultaneous in the book. It presents an argument that you know is understandable, and like you said, it, it could apparently convinced you. It fucking almost ruined your vacation. You know, it almost convinced you uh, <laughs> when you were on a, a beautiful island that you know your your theory was wrong, or you know, the, <laughs> which sucks. That's the, the the thing about intellectual life that is so hazardous. <laughs> That's right. I was sitting on the side of a mountain. We just climbed. A, a, there's a sheer cliff, a 12, 1,400-foot cliff into the Atlantic, sheer rocks. And I was looking out, and there was some – they've just a newly established gannetry. The gannets were, like, dive-bombing from, like, a couple of hundred feet, grabbing grab themselves some fish, hitting wow. the water 100 miles an hour. And I was saying to myself – this goddamn series has just bit the dust because I'm going to have to go on there and argue against everybody. But, uh, <laughs> no, I would. You know what? If if that happens to anyone, I totally welcome that because you know that's if it's if it's this is that has to be a live option in order for any of this to mean anything. <laughs> yeah, like you know, and I, I remember when I was uh, interviewing Andrew first about the book. You know, it's a good three or four years ago. I can't remember when, but I was asking him, and I was saying, you know. I was saying, you know, I was really skeptical when I came to the book and because uh, I presumed it would just be wrong. You know, <laughs> given all the stuff that's out there about about the problem, it's hard to believe everybody was just being completely incorrect all the time. And he was like, he was kind of taken back by me. You know, he was like, seriously? And, you know, and I wasn't like making a comment about him. I was just like saying, no, just in general, like you just got, you would have to assume that it's, 
it's wrong. And that's the way I've always approached this book. And it's totally convinced me. I I was extremely skeptical. And I, I had, I had, you know, my, I had my, uh, what is it? What's it? My conversion on the road to Damascus. Well, that sounds a bit weird now. It sounds like a real Putinite, doesn't it? I'm making a biblical reference. But I, 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 I had it, nearly had it on, on uh, a reverse one on, on Clare Island, but I got through it. Let's have a read at this argument because I think there's some very interesting point here. It's a very simple mathematical equation. One, also, one of the most important in the book, I think. Does anybody want to take this? I've been talking a lot. Alex, are you about there still or have you fallen into a... Uh, uh, some kind of what's the Antipodean dreams? <laughs> Where not, are you? Not, not sure if I follow Tom. Um, yeah, no, I'm 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 still there. I'm just manning the comments. Um, <laughs> you're in charge of the comments. Lists. Pardon? You're you've been you've been a stalwart in the comments. You've always been like uh, given it given it large in there. I've been reading them as we go along. You're, yeah, you're in charge there. <laughs> um. So, so where were we up to? It was a five point five five? Was it simultaneous valuation and negative values? Um, okay, so he uses um, an example, um, and what he's, uh, I think, what he's trying to refute is that that would you say he's trying to refute the, the value form approach? Is that am I reading that correctly in this section? I think he's trying to refute the idea that the um, the fact that mo- these uh, simultaneous guys they say that um, that l- they they make the co- point that labor is the only source of value, and Mark mm. uh, and and Kleiman in this section is going to point out a, a very simple case where it doesn't. And it makes no sense. Let me read this one because I, I I kind of read it there the other day. And again, let me let me let me go here. Yeah. The, the, the negative value problem has typically been discussed in connection with multi-sector models of joint production, but it arises even in the most simple cases. For instance, okay, this is I think this is great. Let me just highlight this bastard. My God, it doesn't like <laughs> highlighting. It's so annoying. Right. Uh, for instance, assume that corn produced by means of seed corn and living labor is the economy's only product. Okay, so it's only corn in this. There's no, no iron, there's no coal, there's no potatoes. It's just iron, or just corn. Also assume that in the economy as a whole, the farm workers plant 10 bushes of seed corn to start the year. Okay, so they've got 10 bushes of seed corn, they're going to plant them. Let's see what happens. They perform L- person years of labor during the year so there's 10 of them is there 10 people oh, okay i'll just get to it in a minute yeah, it's it's like, yeah yeah okay perform they form l years of labor during the year but owing to a drought at the end of it they only harvest nine bushels of corn okay put 10 in the ground terrible harvest there's a drought no rain they only harvest nine at the end okay it's natural to suppose that the price of corn will rise and indeed, this is what Marx's value theory, as understood by the TSSI, suggests. Because the farmers are still doing all the same amount of labor, but they're just getting less at the, output, at, at the end. So the same amount of labor goes in, the nine will be worth more. Okay. The total value of the nine bushels of output is the sum of the value transferred from the 10 bushels of seed corn that are used up 
plus the value added by the work farm workers' labor. Okay, so the value of the seed plus the new labor, right? Everybody okay with that? Then, does the nine bushels of corn are worth more than the 10 bushels of seed corn, which implies that the per bushel price of corn increases? Okay, but simultaneous models prevent this increase from occurring. And by doing so, they create a negative value problem. So this is really important to me. This is like, this is this should be getting you worried if you're a simultaneous. Okay. Um, if V is simultaneously determined value of a, of a bushel of corn and L is the value added by the living labor, then we have 9V, this is our output, is equal to 10V plus L. So our output, nine bushels of corn, is, is equal to, 10 bushels plus the labor added okay now if we take away 10 from the right hand side and just get l and we take 10 from the left hand side we get minus v okay so we get minus v equals l so thus v must be negative if l is positive or obviously if v is positive then l is negative so the workers labor are, is subtracting value that's that's what we get from this equation mm -hmm. yeah Whereas if, whereas if you take a temporal approach, that initial value is just going to be distributed among those nine bushels. Am I reading yes. that right? So it, it, yeah. It, 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 yeah, it just goes back to um, labor being the only determinant of value. Yes, and this would say that the labor in a simultaneous one could give you negative value. So it's essentially saying like the, the people have been going out there setting fire to the corn or some shit, you know, yeah. <laughs> like that's why I brought value form up before is okay. I just remember a discussion last uh, week about uh, it was a bull in the China shop. I'm not sure if people remember that. Um, mm -hmm. am, am I on the right track there? Is that, is that sort of, is that how value form uh, theorists would, would characterize uh, this problem? It's really interesting that there is so much assumed in common between value formers and simultaneous, but I think value formers are not concerned with this dimension that much whatsoever. They're not really uh, interested in the quantitative. They're more uh, interested yeah, in the qualitative. They, they just don't think about it, honestly. Sure. Well, it's, sure. That's not the point. That it would be. That would be to fetishize the critique that Marx is trying to make. Marx to them, they're coming at this from a sort of Adorno Frankfurt School standpoint of critique. They don't think Marx is really making positive claims about economics. They think that okay. he's just a critic of bourgeois economics. He's not really an economist in that tradition. That's the way they see that whole thing. Um, okay, so yeah, they, they sidestep all of that. I don't think they give a shit about this. Yeah, fair enough. One thing we should add is yeah. that uh, I've been reading uh, that Henrik Grossman book and we should be reorganizing, like, who is the dominant thinkers in the Frankfurt School? Should be Henrik fucking Grossman. Other guys can go and die. Has <laughs> anyone come across uh, uh, Alfredson Rethel? Who? I, 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 I haven't investigated his work, but his name is all over the lit. Yeah, he should be up there as well. Uh, the value formers, they like him. But yeah. yeah. Nah. I wish I knew more about him. If only I could find out. <laughs> well, <Yeah. laughs> no way to know. 
Does and, what, what do people, Emmanuel? What do you make of this equation here now? What's you're an equations dude? What what does it say to you then? Um, well, it it just goes to show that if you want to, you know, evaluate things simultaneously, we, you know, you end up with really strange results. Um, so in this case, you know, any decrease um, at the end of the year uh, due to anything, uh, in this case, weather, right? So we have weather conditions that um, makes it so that the uh, each seed does not yield one bushel of corn. So we lose one bushel of corn. So we have a lower physical quantity at the end of the year. And then we had starting um, th that sort of spurious accidental thing uh, ends up being, you know, th the determination of what labor does. So what, what this is saying is that if there's a drought, uh, not only are you wasting your time tending to the field, but you're actually, you know, doing, you're, you're, you're actually, you know, losing value. Uh, you should be out doing something else instead, like in, investing in real estate or, or whatever, whatever it is, but do not tend to your fucking bushels of corn <laughs> if there is a drought. It seems to me what this is, what this is saying. Um, it's, it's, I, I think, you know. I think the simultaneous kind of school should be kind of it should be kind of reimagined as the school of shit farmers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, the, absolutely. The school of um, labor incompetency. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. Um, so, but I, I just want to. Uh, so, I, I, I took the time to look through some of the comments in the chat, um, and I just oh, wanted to make some that, clarifications be because quiet. one of them addressed me directly. Um, and there, there is, yeah. I'm, is, is that okay? Or should we? I, I think that we have so much to talk about in the chat today that right. we should have a special section at the end to, to right. talk All right. about cool. right. Right. That one particular antagonist is giving us, because I think, I think yes. that that would make like, that would make a, a, normally I like cut out the chat sections when I do my edits, but I think that's going to be a, a vital section. Cool. All right. Okay. Let's say that for later. That's okay. That's fine. Yeah, sure. That's um, okay. Yeah, the, the one thing I want to say about this example. Um, so coming at this, I was coming at um, Marx's economics after reading Karl Marx's theory of history, the G.A. Cohen book, the, the analytical Marxist book that does such an admirable job of creating a model of Marx in terms that I was, you know, already familiar with. I was doing a philosophy degree. So this was... I was just, you know, impressed. And the concept of a paradigm that at least from its starting point attempts to model Marx in the best way possible using the sharpest tools we have available. That was so attractive to me. And it, again, so many of Marx's intuitions it modeled perfectly. When I turned to analytical Marxist economics, I was dumbfounded how it it didn't seem to model those intuitions at all, but I was still like, well, maybe I just, I don't, maybe I just don't know. But I stumbled across this after looking at some John Romer and I was like, okay, like I'm going to, I'm going to read this and, and see what I think. When I hit this part of the, ch of this book, of this chapter, 
I had to marvel to myself, you know, it does not seem like they care much about modeling Marx's intuitions. If they're going to have an outcome with negative value when labor is positive. Like, yeah, I, I think as well, do you know what it's amazing is like that, that example there, the one with the, with the negative labor by the farmers when there's a bad harvest is like, that's not an unusual occurrence. <laughs> that's not some crazy weird ass, you know, you know, case that never comes up in capitalist uh, <laughs> right. production. It's pure standard. There was a drought in Ireland this year. Potato prices have gone through the roof. Right. You know, because they had to, they had to, they lost lots of the crop. They had to water, they had extra expense, loads of extra labor, watering them at night in the morning. They never would have to bother their ass. It's normal, goddamn economics. It's the most basic, it's the most basic situation, something like that. Right. But all these people who are well aware of this and confront that all the time find some use for this way of modeling things. I don't think it's, it's not always like Steve Keen. It's not always like they only are going to model Marx this way and then, you know, do real economics elsewhere. Like, I think I, I'm still interested in why people that know that, you know, shit just doesn't go up and up and up um, do this. Like, I have to know, I have to know why. <laughs> well, you know, I think it's a, I think sometimes it's a, I think it's like, it's a combination of things. Like sometimes it's bad fate. Sometimes it's good fate, but bad interpretation. Sometimes it's, you know, they've done work on it and now they find out they're kind of wrong and they don't want to admit it. You know, it's the, you know, what is it? Phoebe's scientist friend who went to Minsk in Friends and like spent 20, 10 years working on some theory and then it turns out wrong, you know, and he's very depressed. I yeah. think there's, there's lots of that in there too. I do think there's bad fate some of the time too. But I don't find like yeah. that Mosley's is bad fate. I, you know, he no. he nearly convinced me, you know. Yeah, that's why I think, you know, that's one of the inter prime interlocutors we should be um, considering once we finish this book. Um, that and uh, the econophysics people. Anyway, yeah. So I, I think um, does any. I think I'd like to do this section here, which actually kind of gets into what you're talking about a bit. It gets into Brenner, who's your bud, and uh, yeah. I think Romer. Do you want to take this one because there's some mathematics that's going to come here in a minute. There's a few little equations. They're not very difficult, but they're goddamn irrefutable. So I think it's worth doing this chapter again. I think that this part, 5.6, and to be honest with you, once you do 5.6, I think we've done the whole chapter, whether we can hit to the chat after this section. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Un unless anybody else objects and thinks that we skimmed over something major, um, I'm, I'm down with that. I don't know how much of this we want to talk about, um, but uh, as in, like, you know, there is a few pages of chat here. Um Okay. Um, yeah, um, you, you, you start there, Alexia, and we'll see how we get on. Yeah, so um, this is an idea. So this, is a, this section starts out talking about that some people don't really realize that the determination of value by labor time is incompatible with simultaneous valuation. And I think Brenner is, is like a paradigm case. Brenner, oh, damn it. Brenner is an analytical Marxist, not only in this G.A. Cohen sense of trying to model Marx's 
um, you know, theory and yada yada, like precisely according to the book. But he's he's doing the interesting step after that. Once we can agree that we all have we we can all agree that we have a model of Marxist theory, then let's see how it stacks up to history. Let's see how it stacks up to the empirical record, and um, you know, so that that's what makes Brenner like the like the academic Marxist of his of his like generation, <laughs> like is is his critique of historical materialism. But coming in coming in here, um. We have Brenner, as Clement says, uh, succeeds in de demolishing the physicalist, quote, Malthusian theory of the falling rate of profit, but he, pre uh, he presents this as a critique of Marxist theory, um, even though he recognized that Marxist theory refers to the fall in the value rate of profit. In other words, Brenner fails to recognize any difference between the value and physical rates. Marx was, of course, anti Marx was, of course, fiercely anti-Malthusian. The Malthusian character of his theory of the fall of the rate of profit is therefore highly incongruous, although logically unavoidable, given that it has the decline in profitability result from a decline sick in productivity. That is a decline in physical output per unit of physical input. Um, so he, uh, Kleiman stacks three things that can't all be true that Brenner, um, Oh, okay. Let's go to that. Let's yeah, go to yeah. that because Brenner's I account. think this is in a yeah. This is in a paper by Leibman, and he is this the one? So can we get to this? I, I don't know. If, I, does Brenner do that too? Uh, well, he he has he. It's um no no. I was actually skipping ahead to Leibman. So let me yep. just tackle okay. Brenner really quick. Um, there's um there's three pieces of evidence Clement feels in Brenner's account that allow us to conclude that his interpretation of Marx's value of Marx's theory is almost certainly incorrect. So um, first, the idea that that the theory's allegedly Malthusian character is highly incongruous. Second, the theory is internally inconsistent under Brenner's interpretation. And as Brenner himself acknowledges in the same footnote, Marx claimed that the decline in profitability results from a rise in productivity. Um, therefore, what Brenner calls his theory of the fall of the rate of profit is exactly the opposite of what Marx claimed. Um, but he doesn't see this as an, a misinterpretation. And, and I, I think this is a, a true critique of Brenner and the analytical Marxists more generally, is that um, Brenner, a historian, relied on the authority of physicalist Marxist economists. Um, they typically identify the theory with Marxists and overlook the fact that physicalism is incompatible with the idea that value is determined by labor time. Yeah. So, um, okay. Yeah. Let's get to this next bit. This this is the bit I was really uh, more kind of um, interested in. I don't know. Is the Leibman these kind of mathematical kind of assertion by Leibman of like I suppose what Mar what he's trying to get to here is that these people are consider themselves like that they consider that value theory is important, you know. But when they become physicalist in their simultaneity. <laughs> my god what a lot of jargon that is that, there's a lot of jargon in this book yeah that lo logically they the whole thing is completely incompatible and this is you know like you know i did it like i know i said it loads of times you know it's like blow my own horn but i did a degree in mathematics you know there's only about you know sometimes you do a big difficult theorem you know and whatever 
field you're going to do and there's two or three or five pages of you know steps of logic and you know it can be difficult to follow but like what i find in this book is that time and time again the equations are like three lines long and they are incredibly simple equations and like that just baffles my mind you know that always just amazes me but i think we let let's get into it do you want to do you want to do you want to uh take it from here lexi for from these these three guys here sure um so those who tried to merge physicalism and determination of value by labor time uh by means of simultaneous valuations have often asserted three important propositions that are incompatible together and so Kleiman takes Leibman as a case in point <laughs> within the space of a few pages. <laughs> For instance, Leibman asserts all of them. The three propositions are, one, commodities values fall as labor productivity rises. This proposition follows from the determination of value by labor time. Second, in a one commodity world, the value rate of profit and the physical quote rate of profit quote, uh, sur um, physical surplus divided by physical input are identical. Three, the rate of profit is capital's potential rate of self-expansion. That's a quote. Potential in this context means maximum. When all profit is reinvested, the growth rate of capital, known as the rate of accumulation, equals the profit rate. This follows from the fact that the growth rate of capital is the ratio of net investment to capital. By definition, this ratio is equal to the ratio of net investment to profit times the ratio of profit to capital equation. And the rate of profit is defined as the ratio of profit to capital. Thus, the growth rate of capital equals the rate of profit when the net investment equals profit. Okay, let's let's think about that for a second. Yeah. So what is the maximum rate of profit you can, or the maximum investment you can do? If you think about like your, you have your, you've used up all your means of production, you've paid your workers, and now you've got some mm -hmm. profit. How quickly can you grow your, your initial stock of capital? Well, if you just take all your fucking profit and pump it back into investment and pump it back into new factories and new means of production. So like your rate of profit is your maximal rate of accumulation. Does that make sense for people? Yes. Yeah. Okay, Grant. Yeah, so I'm sorry. I just sometimes when you read all that, it feels very jargony, right? Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, totally. It, it's just um, his phrasing does a good job of like drawing out the relationships in verbal terms that it would be hard for me to. Okay, well, this equals that, and <laughs> anyway. Okay. Um, let, let 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 me take this bit here. Let me go see. Go for it. Uh, I, I, yeah. Kind of talking a lot here. Okay, so uh, now assume the conditions of the problems are satisfied. So he's going to come up with a few equations that's going to describe those three worded. Let's have a look again at these three. So these three things he's going to come up with. Andrew's going to put them into mathematical formulas. Okay, just really simple one-liners. Okay. Okay, let's have a look. Um, okay, now assume that the conditions of the problem are satisfied. There exists a single commodity serving both as a means of production and a consumer good so like corn it's a means of production and it's like the food you eat labor productivity rises and all profit is reinvested okay that means that the capital is growing at its maximum potential rate you're getting all your profit and you're chucking it back into production 
Okay, let the rate of ROP stand for the rate of profit and let MGRC stand for the maximum growth rate of capital. Okay, okay, so he's just saying we have a rate of profit and then we've got the maximum growth rate of capital. And he says to distinguish between the value and price version variables and the physical counterparts, we use the subscript phi, the Greek letter phi, and this will be attached to uh, physical. Okay, so phi is for physical. Okay, so now he's going to come up with a few simple equations. Okay, now labor productivity is rising. Okay, so this implies that commodities value is falling. Okay, this in turn implies that capital value grows more slowly than physical value, physical capital. Okay, everybody get that? Since labor productivity mm -hmm. is rising, okay, the commodities value is falling. So that means that the maximum growth rate in value terms would be less than the maximum growth rate of capital in physical terms. Okay. That makes sense to people. Yeah, necessarily. Yeah, it's like a definition. Okay. Because uh, our value rate would be going at a, at a slower rate than our physical rate because the physical doesn't care about productivity. Yeah, that's like the definition of productivity. You do more with less. Yeah. Okay. So now here we have our second proposition. This is the rate of profit. Is they're going to be equal. So the rate of profit and value is going to be equal to the rate of profit physical. Okay. And then the third one implies that the maximum growth rate of capital is equal to the rate of profit. And the maximum growth rate of capital in physical terms is the rate of profit in physical terms. So these are all just, you know, very simple statements of these facts. Okay. Taken yeah, together. Go ahead. Uh, just in, in, in other words, the, the maximum shit you can reinvest is both the value that you get, the, the, the profits that you get in, in, in money or value terms, uh, or it's, and or uh, it's going to be the amount of corn you produce um you know if you reinvest all of that into producing next year's corn then that those two are necessarily equal whether or not you do it in in value or or physical terms it's just re restating what what you did but with more sort of colloquial well i don't know i think i'm the most colloquial motherfucker on this podcast that's a claim now that's quite all right all right <laughs> hey, i i i form neologisms not i don't rely on colloquialisms okay i got my bong ribs. okay i got my okay. you know anyway. i haven't heard any bong ribs today so i'm skeptical about that now okay so <laughs> so taken together right we got a few equations here actually this stuff is probably works very badly on a podcast so no, no, no. This is this is important, right? Like, there's this is a this is the, like the logic. This is a, a a logical argument. It's exciting. I know. Maybe I won't put this in when I edit down, but uh, it's definitely good for the yeah. pure it, pure it, souls it, on the YouTube channel. Without without doing the the, the math thing, they, they are super clear if you can see them. But many listen to the audio. Uh, number one is saying that productivity is a thing, wherein uh, you produce more with less. So there's going to be less value invested than you're going to get in physical output, right? And then there is a rate of profit in value terms, which is going to be the same thing as your rate of profit in physical terms, i.e. if you get 20% more corn, 
than you initially invested. That's the same thing, whether or not you count corn in dollar terms or labor time terms, or if you count just your amount of bushels of corn. And then you have the thing where the maximum the maximum rate at which you can expand corn production is going to depend on, um, you know, the, the the physical amount of corn that you can produce, um, uh, and you reinvest all the the corn you you get. You you take all of that and you reinvest it, or you take all the value and the dollars and you reinvest that. That's the that's the three things, right? And these are okay. supposed. You know, they supposedly they they're they're all true by definition. They all seem perfectly reasonable, and the intuition here is that they're gonna make sense in conjunction. You can have all three, and Clyman is gonna say, "No, you yeah. can't." So the problem here is with um, propositions two and three together. They make up one cohesive unit, and then with proposition one. So yeah, so it, it two so mg so proposition two and three imply that the maximum growth rate of of value capital is equal to the value growth rate of uh, capital in physical terms. But we just actually <laughs> previously just denied that, and in this one, yeah, proposition one. So it's like immediately you've got three simple propositions when you write them down in clear math and do just very basic greater than or equals, <laughs> the whole thing falls immediately apart. Oh, yeah. It's kind of staggering. What else is cool is, yeah, he's going through, well, let's affirm one and three. Well, then, you know, two yeah. can't be, right? Well, let's affirm yeah, one like, and two. Well, then three must be false. So, like, yeah, it's just a complete, like, you can pick one or two or two and three or one and three, but you can't have all three of them. And... You know, even without going into all of this stuff with the jargon of these tables and all this stuff, you just write down what you what you're going to say, what your what your what the tables imply, and you just write them down in simple one-liners. It's only one line of logic show that it's wrong. Yeah, I actually think that this is way easier than comprehending a table, even by audio. This is just three conceptual relations you got to hold in your head. I suppose one of them is a joint conceptual relation because it's a conjunction, but whatever. The point being yeah. that like these logical relationships to me are abstractable from mathematical context sometimes. I mean, you know, this is a form of mathematical logic, but it's not like we're dealing with a mathematical example. I think this stuff can be very useful. And that's what ultimately convinced me that I understood any of this is because, you know, I was at least familiar with logic. Like I wasn't familiar with all the math that you might want in, an, you know, in economics. But I I knew my logic. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like I think in th in this example, like I don't think you need anything more than like you don't need even like a high school math to understand. I yeah. don't think this argument. Like this yeah. argument is like if you're able to do like solve two simultaneous equations, that is more difficult than this. You know, right? Uh, yeah. Finding the square root of a quadratic function is a lot more difficult than this that's what staggers me like even if you're not good yeah. at math person this stuff is just like it's just like a slap in the face with a with a wet fish 
Yeah, but but like the the thing here is that they're all perfectly reasonable and intuitive propositions and and definitions. But um but like my take from this, yeah, he 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 shows that you can only have two but you you can't have three. Uh you can't have you can't just cannot have all of them. Uh to me what what is what is important for the sort of core thing about Marxist theory is that, you know, either productivity is a thing or it's not, right? Either it's a thing that you can, um, you can uh, get more output of corn with less investment, less initial investment. That's what productivity is. In which case, you know, um, it it, it 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 can't be <laughs> like j just from that thing if if you believe that productivity is a thing um which marx you know indubitably does and i don't think anyone could could disagree with him there if there's an inequality between the value invested and the physical outputs um, then that necessarily means that you know uh, 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 an equal relation between physical outputs is impossible. You, you, you've stated that if if you believe you know productivity is a thing, um, then you have to sort of you know <laughs> you have to go with that. You 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 just can't ignore uh, the fact that there is an unequal relationship between the value invested and the actual amount of corn that you get um that's sort of am, am i making sense at all yeah no. so the, the your last part just cut out okay well it's 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 basically you know okay uh, in in the text, Kleinman is making the case that you can you can take all of these three propositions and you can only pick two, right? Um, but uh, at the end of the day, my my take from this is with proposition number one, uh, i.e., productivity is a thing, and if you if you um, uh, if you accept proposition number one, which is that you know. Uh, there's an unequal relationship between the value invested and the physical output that you get. You have to run with that. Um, and if you then try to say that productivity is a thing and it matters, but then you also want to say that all physical outputs and all value inputs are equal, then you know you, you just cannot make that make sense. So while the you know take three, but you can take three cards, but you can only pick two, um, is 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 a cool thing, and the whole sort of logical inconsistency thing is a cool thing. Um, I think the the core the core tenant for Marxist theory is the is proposition number one, i.e., productivity matters, motherfuckers, and like <laughs> you have to run with that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I I think um, uh, we have kind of, you know, done the guts of that chapter. I think we've done it ins and outs. I think there, 
that we have well i think we've enjoyed that chapter personally yes. it, that is the key chapter in the book for me um but um i i i know there is some group chat going on in there there's like some there's some hardcore stuff going on there between antagonist 1dz hmm. i don't know who that is uh um and yeah, Alex. we have a well-read strophian which is awesome um like uh, who who uh, attempts to cor correct not only us but 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 Clyman here? Uh, well, actually, if I've been reading the, their comments, and it seems like they're actually not a Shrafian, but they think that Clyman's presentation of Shrafianism is unfair. So okay. that's that's yeah, okay. Yeah. That's an even further but, but, but level of well in, in Shrafian theory, uh, yeah. which is more than any of us are. So that's that's awesome. Uh, yeah, this is exciting. So I don't know we'll what just, we want to do with it. Do we we'll just like, start from the top? Could we? Just, yeah. Okay, and, and talk through them. Okay, so let's uh, let's see where we go. Who are we talking about? Antagonists. Okay, okay. Antagonist. Physicism does not take it from the top. Top from the top. Yeah, take it, take it. We got a uh, physicalism does not imply simultaneism. Okay, well I think what we are saying is the opposite of that. That simultaneism yes, implies physical physicalism. I cleared that yes. up in the chat. Okay, so then what is next? Okay. Um, so when, how long? So there's there's quite a few different points here. Um, no, no, no. It's it's his overall point is like towards the towards the middle. But just to I don't know, skim over these points. Um, prediction. You, you go through because I haven't been following them as a, I, I've yeah. just been seeing them because I I haven't been reading them. So it take me a while to go through them again. Okay, so predictions of theory of prices of production plus simultaneous evaluation do contradict the predictions of Marx's labor theory of value. Okay, so uh, no argument there. Uh, Emmanuel's summary that simultaneism assumes prices, in quote, to be determined in exchange is incorrect. It shows rather that the stable exchange ratios are determined by technology and real wage. It can't determine the magnitude of the price vector. The reason this would appear obscure yep. is because you are stuck in a one good example from Kleiman's book. So can I, can I address that? Absolutely. Yeah, can, can I say something as well before you just hop in the manual? I kind of, okay, cool. I kind of was, I kind of was wondering when you said that point at the same at that time as well, I was kind of wishy-washy, but I didn't want to butt in and say you were wrong like I did the week before and then figure out I was wrong. So, <laughs> so, uh, this is a good point. So you fire ahead there, Emmanuel, again. Right. So there, there are a couple of things here. Um, so my my assertion was uh, not it, it, my, my claim was not that all simultaneous uh, doctrines um, think that value is determined in exchange. My point was to illuminate, you know. Why would anyone think that just because the value of the bushel of corn equals five dollars, then the seed must also equal five dollars? And there are a lot of economic theory schools uh, and models that really do do this sort of uh, determination of of past values um, because they think that exchange 
um, the, the value is determined in, in exchange. So it's, it's, it's a common answer to the knowledge problem. Uh, how do you know the, you know, the value of your half finished genes uh, in the factory at the, you know, 75% of completion? Um, well, one way to do that is look at what they sell for and then backtrack. Um, and this is what a lot of uh, economic models do. So it, it wasn't it wasn't saying that all simultaneous or that was not my intention to say that all simultaneous models assume that value or or prices are determined in in exchange. It's rather that all models that do so um, inevitably become simultaneous. Because they they uh, they determine that they backtrack in, into the past and project you know current prices onto the past, which is a simultaneous thing to do. Um, the the second part here, the the second uh, thing is uh, the quote. It shows rather that the stable exchange ratios. Uh, this is in in, in bold or um, in in stars uh you know um it's it's emphasized so the the stable exchange ratios are determined by technology plus real wage yes that's true um um i think that's true under i think that's explicitly true under srafa um i'm not i'm not familiar enough in the details of his theory to say that but yeah i think that's the the central claim of Simultaneous evaluation. I think Kleiman does the same characterization. Um, and the one thing I would say to this is that okay, if we have stable exchange ratios, so that means that you know ten T-shirts um, uh, exchange for one shoe, uh, say, uh, we still have the problem, and this is, in my view, Marxist genius. Um, it's still the case that 10 t-shirts and, uh, one shoe then are equal magnitudes of a third thing, which is neither the t-shirts nor the shoe. And the question is what determines the, uh, the third thing here? What determines the magnitude that both of them share? And uh, to me, this is where um, Marx's theory takes its standpoint and why the third thing argument, uh, as it were, uh, really matters. And uh, it seems to me that um, as soon as you talk exchange ratios, whether or not they're vectors and, 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 and things that... that um, uh, that uh, antagonist 1DZ uh, mentioned, as soon as you have exchange ratios that both express the same amount of value, so 10 t-shirts and a shoe are worth the same amount, then what needs to be explained is the same amount. And it seems to me that, that any theory uh, able to explain that has to be temporal in its nature. Um, and I'm not sure uh, how a simultaneous conception could 
possibly solve that, but I'm, you know, I am way on 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 the thin ice here. I only know Marx's theory, um, uh, the way he he wrote it. I'm not familiar enough with 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 Straffa or other economic theorists to to be able to make a you know mathematical or or, or logical. Um, rebuttal of that but that that that's sort of what i would say to that if if, if you're talking a change ratios fine but that it's it's not the if you have ratios between two different commodities what needs to be explained is their common element and marx traces that to socially necessary labor and socially necessary labor seems to me to be by definition temporalist uh because what's going to be socially necessary at time one um, is not going to be socially necessary at time two. Uh, this seems to me to be perfectly valid uh, given the definition of what productivity is. Um, I don't know how to make sense of a conception of productivity that is uh, abstracted from or independent of time. So that's that, that would be my response to that. Okay, so um, yeah. yes, sir. No, go ahead. What you, you... I, I was going to um, suggest that we move on not to the next uh, chunk of comments, which are about sort of, it's sort of an aside, but the chunk of comments afterwards, because I think it's in dialogue. It, it goes over some of the same ground, but it's also in dialogue with some of what Emmanuel is saying. Um, but what were you going to say? Um, well, I was just going to say that I, I don't know Straffa's, I haven't read Straffa's work um so I feel incapable of arguing with the person, and I think that we, if we want to, we could do an, uh, some some we could do a, a thing on Shraffa and see what we make oh, of them. We should totally do sh like a Shraffa, like Stephen thing. Yeah, something. like I I think so, but like I uh, but I so I'm I'm wary to get into a big discussion with points on what Shraffa said or what didn't, and how representative of what Andrew was saying that Shraffa what this book is of Schraffa's work um because he doesn't really he, he spends more time talking with other marxists than other than than he's not taking apart uh Schraffa's actual work well he's attacking the analytical marxists and i have i have this phenomenal textbook by tom is it met meyer or mayor um that that basically lumps him in in with the analytical Marxists for the reason that like so many of the Marxian economists, the contemporary Marxian economists that are correcting Marx are using that as a basis. But I understand what you're saying. So, yeah, like I was saying, like, I don't like uh, antagonist one DZ is getting to, you know, the vector of prices yeah. and, and, and quantities and talking about all that. So it's hard for me to critique it when I haven't read it. Um, uh, well, well, what we are critiquing specifically is the logic of people who were influenced by Schraffa and what how they're trying to uh, shoehorn prices and values together using simultaneous evaluations. And that doesn't work. Now, there is a very reasonable case to be made that like Schraffa's uh, um, ideas that kind of, I, as far as I know, Schraffa doesn't have value. He just has price. I could be totally wrong, but like I'm well open to theories of where somebody just has price and we can look at them and see them, how they work for as a theory. But, um, you know, 
what we're doing here is specifically showing how the simultaneity and uh, setting inputs and outputs causes things to screw up when we're trying to make sense of Marx's theory. So I, I you know, I, I I'm very wary of trying to make an argument for or against, or I can't even tell whether his arguments antagonist one DZ are correct or not when we get to some of this stuff because I don't have the background in it. I think it's a separate show. That's that's my instinct. I don't know what people say. Are people saying uh what do people think? I mean I don't know. I, I like <laughs> like I, I can't check a lot of the, the, the things that are coming up either because I don't have the background but I, yeah I, I think it would just be it would be fun to you know entertain the comments and try to see if, if we can grasp why he doesn't feel like this is a fair representation because he he does lay out the price factor and and basically his point just I guess to summarize is that you can't actually get the ratio um, because in, in a in a one good economy, right? And that you can't, you, you can't so, get what ratio? Um, oh, what Kleiman, so shoes what to is, right? Shoes what, what Kleiman is saying apparently is, if I understand our antagonist correctly, um, what Kleiman is representing as simultaneous uh, costs or, or price or something along those lines, it is actually not what Shrafa is holding constant. It's the the exchange ratios that he's holding constant. Okay. Yeah, but so, but, but, but and so and that wouldn't work in, is, that wouldn't work in a one good economy. Right, but and, and and my point here would be that all right, let let's let's run with that um and let's let's hold do the two exchange ratios constant, but we in 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 my view just coming at this from a Marxist perspective that's not going to matter too much because even if we hold the exchange ratios constant, we still need to explain how it is that two commodities with different who who have ratios between each other are still worth the same amount. Um, that's your third thing. That's, that's your that that's, that's your third thing that, argument. Like, no, it's, it's, not, it's not my third thing argument. It's Marx's third thing <laughs> argument. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, that's, that's value. Uh, the, the 10 T-shirts uh, equal one shoe. That means they're both equal expressions of the same magnitude of value. They're both worth the same amount. Um, so what needs to be explained is... The, the 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 homogeneous substance you know the 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 thing um equating the two and unless srafa has some uh cool response to this that i haven't heard of um or that i haven't seen in any of the admittedly secondary literature i have uh read on srafa then we can have any exchange ratios we want. It still does not give us a, a value theory. A value theory, uh, in my mind, has to explain um, how it is that to uh, how it is that exchange ratios are at all possible. Um, maybe Strafa does that, uh, but I think Kleiman's argument is that uh, to the extent that does that at all. Um, it will necessarily boil down to physical quantities. 
I don't know if that is true. Um, I seem convinced by the arguments he's laid out so far, but I, I, I'm, I'm not really seeing um, how, how, how exactly we need a better grasp of Sarafa's theory in order to say that um, a theory of exchange ratios is not a theory of value, and they're not they're they're just conceptually not the same thing. Well, the the, um, the idea is that the the third thing argument, uh, like okay, so Shrafa is arguing right that you don't need a third thing; you can just do exchange ratios. You don't need okay, but, but, you don't need a reference to labor. That's okay. Okay, but that, in that case, you don't have a value theory at all. Um, it's not a value theory, though. Not, it's not a in, price theory. Not in Marxist, not yeah, in Marxist no, uh, yeah. conception, or um, and I can't. I'm I'm gonna go out on a limb here uh, and say that okay, if if you still need convincing about this, I have a document that I wrote for this group called the fifth thing on the fourth thing on the third thing the. If you want me to send it to you, I I'd be delighted to to do so. But I I, I can't see not only how it's you know, uh, specific to, to this is not in my mind specific to Marxist theory. In in my mind, this has to be addressed by any theory that um, that attempts to 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 explain. Uh, I I don't see a way around the third thing argument at all. But I I will grant uh, our antagonist that if you do not accept the third thing argument, then. Yes, Marx's theory is false. Um, I would, well, well, if, if I, 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 wanna, I, I actually that I the third that. thing argument is not valid. I would abandon all of of of, of Marx's theory. Well, see, um, I, I think that's ceding way too much ground because I think even if you don't think that the third thing is logically necessary, you can say that it's an ex, an explanatory uh, premise that uh, is you know empirically like. Uh, viable and or or something that so there's a strong intuitive grasp of when you're modeling an economy um well you, you, you can use i, 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 I would i would not a, agree with you there lexi but i think i think that as, that, that is another well, as, that is a different show but, as a matter but, of like, scientific uh, analysis it doesn't force you to use what it does is that it means that you you don't have to use reference to labor value to do s economic science but I don't think that means that there's no reason to look to labor to try to explain the system, uh, the, the way that the emergent forces in the economy work. Like, I, I understand the counter argument, but I, I don't think it's that reductive. I still think there's room for putting forward a possibility that most empiricists... Uh, are going to spit out and reject. And economics, bourgeois economics, very empiricist. Um, but I think there is room in science for theoretical postulates if they have a decent cash value, no pun intended. And if you can prove that um, value postulates do explanatory work, then you don't actually need a, a third thing argument to process logically necessarily for all science in general. But I'm just going to. Eve, I'm just. Yeah. I, okay. I. I. Uh, I. I. If I understand you here correctly. Okay. Fuck. We're we're getting into a 
we're risking getting okay, into this, a very this, this is the end of the show this is the end of the show it's yeah. fine you can, right. you can okay. if we want but i just uh, want to hear your response okay, my, my, but 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 just my my one and, and final comment to that is if i understand you correctly it's um you're sort of saying that we can we can observe exchange ratios and we can do science on uh the the determination of those exchange ratios without actually trying to explain any sort of commonality between them um which is i, I think if, if that's your position well it's in a way true uh yeah. but it's it's i would then claim it's it's just really bad science then it's empiricism uh, I mean, this, is, this is this is this is why we have the concept of energy in physics is precisely because we want to um, we want to convert uh, different units to to other units. We want to say that you know uh, the energy it takes to boil this and this amount quantity of water under this and this pressure is exactly equal to a thirty minute workout, um, or you know the the amount of cokes consumed. Uh, so they're all different expressions of the same magnitude of energy. Um, and to me, that is exactly the, the, the concept of energy is exactly what makes physics a science. Um, and sure, you could compare ratios between uh, kilocalories and, you know, um, masses of, of objects and uh, the, the orbits around planets, etc., without thinking of a, of a common con a common substance or without having the concept of, of energy at all but i i would i would just argue that the entire field of physics would be much worse off and sure. standing on much much thinner uh theoretical and philosophical ground if it didn't have a third thing namely energy to 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 explain all of these different phenomena and a lot of marxist critiques of bourgeois science is not that it's all wrong but that it's incomplete and so i think that you know, that sits well with me. Like that if you really want like a full view of this, you really do have to look at labor, but may not, you know, but it's not the only way to do science. You can focus in on something else, but if you want, if you want the broader picture, that's my intuition. Yeah. Well, like, let me just put it like this. Um, you know, I really hate Jeremy Clarkson and I really like Marx, <laughs> you know, Jeremy Clarkson. huh? Uh, who's Jeremy Clarkson? He's one of the Top Gear guys. Does anybody know Top Gear? <laughs> okay, I know Top Gear. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right, 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 right. right. Okay, so yeah. I, he's an old dude, right? Yeah, the tall one. I really fucking hate Jeremy Clarkson, right? But I, I really... Jeremy Clarkson? Oh, my God. I hate Jeremy Clarkson. And I, I, and I really like Marx, right? And, you know, can I scientifically <laughs> I put why, together why, uh, why, like why, a hate-to-love hate ratio between I, them two guys? I can't wait to see where this is going. Can I put together a ratio like between do I love Marx more than I hate Jeremy Clarkson? You know, I don't think there's a scientific answer to that, but you can put a ratio on it. You know, and I think that's kind of along the lines of uh, of 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 Schraffa's critique. That you can put ratios on things. Oh, I don't know. That's uh, it, there's something more um, physicalistic and materialistic about Shrafa, and that you can count the the material things. But hey, right? hey, yeah. hey, Tom, 
Tom, I, I think you accident, accidentally explained exactly why I think um, Ben Barwerk and most Austrian economists are actually crypto-physicalists um, mm. because of that exact argument. Um, because as soon as you do away with any sort of unified thing that needs explaining and all you have is subjective valuation that gives rise to these spurious um, exchange values. Not, not to say that, you know, Srafa has, in Srafa's model, um, uh, exchange ratios are spurious, but like, uh, if, if you don't explain the, the, common, the common magnitude uh, across of, you know, okay, so you, you, you like Marx, but you hate Jeremy Clarkson, so you would uh, rather have, you know, um, it, 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 it would take 250 Jeremy Clarkson to compensate for one Marx. All right, well, okay, then there seems to be something that is one no, 250... Yeah, yeah, I'm talking about my hatred. You know, how do yeah, I but, equate my hatred with my love? Uh, well, do do we have commensurate well, units of these things? No, you don't. But that's kind of the that's the point with with Shrafa. You have no commensurate units. Yeah, you just have you're comparing shoes with 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 horse manure. You know, you don't have a commensurate unit, but you've got ratios. So right, it's like exactly. my love of Jeremy Clarkson, and it's like comparing love with hate. Assuming, yeah. assuming we can like weigh love and hate or something, but hmm. but you, but you yeah, still you don't even have yeah, to. Yeah. But, but it, yeah, it, yeah, right. Or yeah, units yeah, yeah. of hate, but, but units here, of love. Here's, right. Here's 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 the thing that that sort of makes this this tick is that if we accept that uh, you know we would we would do a, a, a theory where where we could where, if it were at all possible to weigh love and hate, this is what the the Austrians think, right? So if it's at all possible to compare different uh, subjective values, uh, values in quotation marks here, with each other, then they must share a common element. If, if it's at all possible to stipulate ratios between things, then there must be something which is neither love nor hate that they share in order for you to do so. And if, if that's not the case... Then what you're stipulating is is kind of what I you know what I did in my paper. Uh, like you're you're comparing you know um, ten washing machines equals one third the color green. Like yeah, it's it's it it just doesn't make sense. In order for us to make sense of the ratio ten washing machines equals a third of the color green, uh, if if that's empirically the case somehow. Um, then we we have to find something that unifies the color green with with washing machines in order for that um, for that ratio to even be logically possible. Um, yeah, for for a complete understanding, I agree. Yes. Yeah, um, but like with antagonist just came on here. He says yes, you do have a commensurate unit with Rafa. It's the price. You know, it's given by your price numerator of choice. So there's okay, only price. Yeah. There's cool, only price. Cool. And, and, and Mark says price is the money name of value, right? Okay, so we're we're all in agreement there, and Marx is in c complete agreement with that in in chapter three. Uh, this is why Marx says that price is the money name of value, and he doesn't say price is the money name of exchange value. It's precisely because prices 
when they equal value are the third thing. Um, right, but, but the, uh, idea, the but, uh, idea here is cool. that the price numeraire of choice, meaning not necessarily labor power commodity, right? So you can have the, you know, you can explain things with an oil uh, price numeraire, if I'm understanding them correctly, or a corn price. This is where you get the corn theory of value models, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then you just ignore half of uh, chapter one of, of of volume one, or you 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 don't think that yeah, um, Marx chooses gold. That, that part of of volume one holds uh, well, because right. He, yeah. The, okay. Yeah. Cool. All right. Marx so we'll, gold. We'll, we'll we'll get into that. We'll, we'll, yeah. We'll yeah. Get like, into I think this is I think that's <laughs> worthwhile. This is a, that's a worthwhile uh, investigation of the the critique, and I think we can elaborate another time. I really want to thank antagonists for you know bringing the yeah. heat that was a great challenge uh like anti i'd like the antagonist to like se like send me an email put my email in the chat there send me an email of of things that you think are like worth discussing with respect to the book that we've done if you think like um if we think that the let those send me your critiques and I'll, I'll 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 have a good proper look at them and we will deal with them and if we don't deal with them in this series I like one thing I would like to do is is a, a series on Shraffa. I think series on Shraffa, uh, the, the TSSI and the econophysics. I think there are three yeah. good ones to do. There would be three that I'm interested in doing. It's not a thing where I want to cut off any discussion, but it's just like, you know, we're not going to talk clearly about the thing until we've read it. Um, oh, yeah. And it's you know three hours or two and a half hours, however long we've been on. It's time. Yeah. Um, like I'd like to say thanks to everybody coming on the show let let's see who else do we have in the chat we give michelle before we go yes okay let's start from the very top let's see tom o'brien hi tom yeah he's quite handsome looking at that picture i like that guy um <laughs> then we've got data lore data lore. every i think every appearance so far in every show yeah, uh, a real, data lore. A real uh, either a real hardcore marxist or just some kind of uh, a masochist uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 cheers out there to uh, to all of the Star Trek uh, next yeah. generation fans who are oh, also yeah. into Marxist value theory. What up? Oh, I just watched Chain of Command last night. God, what a oh, oh man, is that a great? It's probably Which the one best. Is That's Which the one, one where they uh, where Starfleet replaces Picard as captain of the Enterprise. That's the concept of the episode. That's not a spoiler. Like uh, oh yeah, and and he and, turns him down. Is it well? Without spoiling too much, uh, he gets captured, and like, and so there's a, there's a very famous interrogation sequence in the second part. As as oh, far as I'm concerned, it's it's the best one and two that I've seen in the whole series, including Best of Both Worlds. I love Best of Both Worlds, but like this is like, I don't know, is that the, is that the Borg? Is that the that's Borg? The, that's the Borg episode, which is oh, the yeah. other contender. The Borgs are all the best. So yeah, the Borgs are always the best. Th this Who's, this this episode of Chain of Command is is like the other big like bit traumatic moment for Picard, where you really see his like you know his his human side, like like how yeah. Okay, well let's keep going. Why did why did we talk about uh, Star Trek? Why data are, lore. are we talking? About? Well, data oh, and right, lore. Okay. So date lore is Data's evil twin brother. Oh, twin. Yeah, yeah. Della Terra of the Earth. Indeed. Data lore, data lore. I thought it was something else. Ah, yes, data lore. Very good. I didn't even cop that on. My God, yeah. and I am a Star Trek. I'm not as nerd. I don't <laughs> remember the name. I, I hope you get a person in the chat whose name is the Crystal Entity. That would be fucking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
<laughs> oh dear. Um, what about uh, so we got Benjamin Hanshu making another appearance, antagonist 1DZ. Thanks for that yeah. stuff. Like it's really good, but uh we will do stuff on this, I think. I'd like to Erica uh yeah. back again. Hello. Hopefully she's paid her license her library fees. Um Alex, of course, who was on is still on is he still on? I think he is. Um uh, yeah, I'm still here. Hey Hi, Alex. Hey, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. keep us um, in the chats getting owned by um antagonists. So <laughs> <laughs> bring in the uh, Marxist fight to the chat. Yeah. <laughs> we got five five star. Yeah, five star. Um one of the world's greatest ever pop bands. Um there was a good there was a good back and forth on Cockshot's uh empirical claims. Which right. I think yeah. I think there's gonna be a chapter on on stuff like that in, in this book coming up yeah yeah absolutely yeah. yeah we also have melmoth uh and constantine something i can't pronounce your second name sorry it's cyrillic um i think that's about it everybody um right will we say goodbye I, to everybody i, I, I just want to give uh, uh, uh again a special shout out to erica um yeah who is fucking awesome and uh you, you tried to keep up with the with the maths in 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 the chat uh and uh th that was awesome and uh keep doing your 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 awesome stuff it's it's always great to have you in the chat and i'm looking forward to if you can fish out and, and copy those pages uh that we talked about last time um so uh yay erica yeah Okay, everybody, I'm going to say goodbye and we're going to uh, take it offline now. Um, so thanks, everybody, for listening. All right, everybody, cheers for coming on and cheers for listening. Bye. Bye.